there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're honored by the presence of Dr. Cesar Marin, researcher and academic at the Center for Research and Innovation for Climate Change at the School of Sciences at Santo Tomas University in Chile. Among his many accomplished roles, Cesar has been a postdoc at the Department of Mycorrhizal Symbioses at the Institute of Botany at the Czech Academy of Sciences. He's been a researcher at the Center of Applied Ecology and Sustainability of the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile and a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Agricultural and Veterinary Sciences of the University of O'Higgins in Chile, and at the Department of Ecosystems and Environment of the School of Agronomy and Forestry Engineering at the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile. Oh, and don't forget Professor of Soil, Ecosystems, and Global Change at the Open University of Recoleta in Chile. Dr. Marin is the founder and lead of the South American Mycorrhizal Research Network. He is on the board of directors of the International Mycorrhiza Society, one of the initial members of the Network Laboratory of the Soil Biodiversity Observation Network, and a research associate of the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. He is currently editor-in-chief of the International Mycorrhiza Society newsletter. He's on the editorial board of the Journal of Sustainable Agriculture and Environment, and of the Evolutionary and Genomic Microbiology section. Dr. Marin is fascinating and inspiring to me as an environmental biologist, ecologist, and mycologist who has peered deeply into the rhizosphere and networked around the world, all while bearing the trauma of a survivor of political violence in his native Colombia. Dr. Marin, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for this uh, nice invitation. It's quite an honor to be here, especially uh, seeing all the guests that you have had so far. So many, many thanks for this. Well, and you are definitely distinguished even among that bunch. Uh, so thank you very much for being willing to come on. And I gave in that introduction a really an illustrious list of roles and groups you've participated with. So I'm really excited to learn, you know, what brought you on this path? What got you interested in studying life sciences? What brought you into the underground? You know, what were some of those inspirations that kind of led you onto the path into the rhizosphere that you're on today? Back in Colombia, I I was all the time in the in the farmland. I I, I have a farm. I, my father's side of the family has uh, several farms, uh, and with my mom, she worked in a indigenous community all my childhood. So I was always going to to the Paramo in in southwest Colombia, uh, which is really really high altitude. Uh, so I was always fascinated, fascinated by this, seeing condors and seeing jaguars. And then in the far side, less wild, but still a lot of nature. And in addition, in addition, I was a swimmer many years of my life. And I used to swim in lakes, in the sea, in rivers, uh, like for ages, more or less. So all my childhood and teenage uh, years, I was always around nature. So about when I was 12 or, or 13, I was uh, sure that I wanted to be a biologist. So that's where I studied environmental biology. And then when I started my PhD, well, I did a bachelor thesis in a totally different subject. 
not not about fungi and mushrooms, but about how crops and weeds compete. But then I I came to a to a PhD here in in southern Chile, and I changed a subject around 2014 because I came in February. Usually is sometimes it's really like luck. Because I came in February and I didn't know that in February in Chile is holiday. So there was almost no one in the building except Roberto, who was my PhD advisor. And he, he had just arrived from Antarctica and we started to talk, to talk about uh, mycorrhizae and about fungi and about how this ivy enters the, the minerals uh, in the rocks and the great they degrade these minerals so i was immediately fascinated by 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 that topic and it has been more than eight years now and i'm still working with with roberto and and with mushrooms and with mycorrhizae yeah i mean that's a fascinating journey and i did see on researchgate some of your early articles about weed suppression uh in i believe it was commercial corn plantations so really interesting work <laughs> yeah. and Talk to us a little bit about what these mycorrhizal relationships are. And what, I guess what I mean is the, the nature of them. I think sometimes we think of these as altruistic relationships where the fungi are just helpers. They're just sharing and helping the plants at, you know, expense to themselves, but they just want to spread the love around. And then, you know, are, so are they symbiotic, mutualistic? Maybe you could talk about, you know, how you would characterize these underground relationships. Yes, uh, that's an excellent question, uh, and it's, it's still a highly debated topic in mycorrhizal ecology. I think that everything in ecology is context-dependent. Everything depends in the context. What I see is like a spectrum. So you can, in, in one side of the spectrum, you can have like mycoheterotrophic plants, which are plants that are 100% dependent on, on the mycorrhizae. So in that, in that case, the symbiosis is complete. But these are just a few hundred species of, of plants or a, or a few dozen species. They, they are not too many plants. Uh, then you could have like arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, which are symbionts that they don't have like a, another function. They are always a symbiotic fungi. And then you can have the other mycorrhizal types like ectomycorrhizal types or orchid mycorrhizal. So there is like a, a gradient of symbiosis in my view. But even in, in cases where you can think that the symbiosis is very strong, for example, if soil nutrients are already available in the, in the soil, then the symbiosis is not so clear. So it always depends on the context, depends on which mycorrhizal type and on which plant family and in the evolution of the of the of the plants so there there, there is a bunch of, of factors and, and and also it's true that maybe in popular uh, uh, stories about about fungi there is this romanticized view about them but i think that uh, fungi have agency uh, so they are looking to reproduce themselves, to survive themselves, the same the plants. Um, so this can go in both directions. Sometimes uh, the plants and the fungi can benefit, but sometimes this is not so clear. Sometimes 
evolution can act in one direction for the plants and in another direction uh, for the fungi. Uh, and as said before, there are plenty of factors that, that determine this. So I am happy that this is still is a highly debated topic because it means that our, our field is advancing. Well, and I think just that idea of remembering that fungi have agency in that relationship, they're not inert wires, you know, that is a huge perspective expanding realization to always keep in mind when we look at these relationships that fungi do have motivations and they are definitely not purely altruistic. And, you know, I always have questions about who decides, you know, where nutrients are going in plant networks who's making decisions and how to mediate the relationships when they want to connect into a mycorrhiza, who's initiating and deciding. Do we have any clear answers on that front? Is it, again, hotly debated? That's a little bit more clear, I think. For example, that that's not my speciality because this is more like a molecular uh, thing. But mm. many people have, have studied this, like Francis Martin, like Toby Kears, uh, but the molecular mechanisms are more or less clear. Uh, for example, for arbuscular mycorrhizae, yeah, I know that there are some genes that when, when the IFE enters the root, these genes trigger another genes in the plant. So it's like a concatenate effect. First, the, the, the genes of the fungi are acting and these trigger these, these uh, plant genes. And the, there is like some coevolution. So yes, from a, a molecular perspective, this is more or less clear, but still many discoveries uh, are coming each year in the, in the, because it's a super complex uh, molecular pathway and it doesn't depend just like in one gene, but in a network of, of, of genes and reactions. Well, and it quickly gets gets over my head, but that's the perfect segue then into what questions in your research that you've had about mycorrhizal networks or what really questions or ideas you've explored in your research uh, into these complex soil systems? Well, yeah, several questions. One, one of them was, uh, was the question of my PhD thesis, and it was related to how this IFE or, or what factors affect the effect of this IFE in the minerals beneath the soil. So all around the world, uh, many cations and many, and, and also phosphorus, for example, they came to the soil by these minerals. So by the degradation of these minerals. And until the 1990s, it was always say that this was a, a process purely uh, chemical and physical, but then some people in, in Sweden discovered this IFE penetrating these, these minerals. So what I studied was how the ecosystem age, how the mycorrhizal type, how the uh, nutrient economy affects this process of, of, of this uh, IFE enter, entering minerals, minerals uh, which are rich in calcium, in magnesium, in phosphorus. So that, that was one of the questions. Uh, right now I have like a project on classical questions in ecology, which can mean like how the altitude in Magallanes, which is in southern tip of Chile, uh, the alti how the altitude affects the biodiversity and the 
complexity of the communities of, of soil fungi in general, not just mycorrhizae, or how precipitation, because in Tierra del Fuego we have a really nice precipitation gradient from the north, uh, really low precipitation, to the south, a lot of precipitation, so we stop in several parts and sample the soil and we are sequencing the soil to see how this affects uh, the community composition and the biodiversity. Uh, also recently with the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, SPOON, uh, we did a sampling really nearby here where I live, near, near Valdivia, in Alerce Costero National Park. And over there, I think that we have the oldest tree in the world of about 5,400 years. So we sampled that tree, we sampled the mycorrhizae of that tree, and we sampled like different perimeters. So the tree in the center and a perimeter of 5 meters, then 10 meters, and then uh, 15 meters to see how different or similar are the communities around that area. We also sample different, like maybe 30 trees of different ages and different sizes. Again, in the, in the center of the tree and then in a 5 meters uh, perimeter to see how similar or different are the communities as, as the trees get older. Also, what, what kind of tree is the oldest tree in the world? I have to know. And what kind of fungi did you find with it? We still don't know what kind of fun, fungi, but, uh, the species name is Fisroya cupresoides. It's, it's a conifer tree. The, this, this appeared, this news of, of the oldest tree appeared recently in Science and in New York Times and BBC. It was like a huge uh, news around the world. The discovery was by Jonathan Barichivis, who is um, a Chilean researcher, but he's based in, in, in Paris. But he works a lot in, in that place because he was born in that place. His, mo his mother was born in that place. So it's, it's also like something very sentimental for him. It's, it's something like a family. So the, the problem with the tree, changing a little bit subject, but the problem with the tree is that it's so huge that you can just, by the endochronological methods, you can just dig like 40% of the tree. You cannot go deeper in the tree, uh, deeper in the stem of the tree when you count uh, ring, rings, because it's so huge that is not possible. So he made like a mathematical estimation to, to estimate the, the things that he, the rings that he couldn't count. So yeah, it's, it's a conifer and the, and the most surprising thing is that the soil there is, is really shallow soil. It's just like maybe 30 centimeters of soil. And then you find rock and pure hard rock. Uh, so the, the, the roots spread a lot but they, they don't go too deep also the the, the particular thing is that uh, it's a conifer and the type of association is arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi so these are like the less i, I always say to my students are the less sexy uh, fungi because they don't produce mushrooms they are just always beneath the soil asexual reproduction and all of that uh, but they, they make associations with around 80% of, of all plants. And here in Chile and in the Southern Hemisphere in general, conifers associate 
uh, with with those kind of of, uh, of fungi. While in the northern hemisphere, con conifers associate with with mushrooms, with with ectomycorrhizal fungi. So in, from that point of view, it's also quite uh, interesting. I was expecting because that's where I live, the northern hemisphere. You're going to tell me there was some massive bolete that associated with the world's no. oldest conifer, but that's really good to know that our buscular my mycorrhizal fungi are the preferred partner of conifers in that area. Yeah. And I'm sure you've thought of all the easy questions, but you know that you could end up exploring over time. Like, how does the depth of soil affect that soil microbial community? Affect the fungi that we find in the soil, the mycorrhizas. And, you know, when we talk about the kind of availability, bioavailability of nutrients in an environment, when you were talking about how the different presence of mycorrhizal fungi, you know, the availability of minerals already in their network of trees and fungi and soil organisms, and how that affects maybe how they break down minerals from the surrounding environment to make them more available. What kind of findings have we found? Because I, I just kind of laid that out all over the place but just my layman's understanding would be well if in the network of organisms that they're chained together with there is you know abundant magnesium or phosphorus they would be less inclined to go make more sources of magnesium and phosphorus bioavailable um, but what are some of the findings from that research and can we make any causal links between the flow of minerals in a soil ecosystem uh, based on the behavior or the incentives of the fungal organisms? That's a quite difficult question. Uh, one of the general findings, which is not only from here, from Southern Chile, but I, I have always seen this kind of papers, is that, for example, with available phosphorus, so you can measure like total phosphorus or, or the phosphorus, phosphorus that is actually available for plants. So usually the total phosphorus would be like... Uh, two parts per million while the available phosphorus could be two thousand par, uh, parts per million while the available phosphorus could be three parts per million really really low uh, content so i have found that when it's really really low the biodiversity of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi is quite high but when phosphorus is higher, there are not so many species of, of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Also, we have found some, some specific species of AMF, of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, like Acaulosporalaevis, like Diversisporalis. They tend to proliferate when we have high content of aluminium. So aluminium will be typically toxic for plants, but it seems like some of these species uh, of fungal species tolerates the aluminium quite well, and they are more abundant in, in, in those places with, with high aluminium. Regarding the cations uh, like calcium and magnesium, again, some, some specific taxa of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi are more related to acquiring these uh, these uh, cations, and recently there was like a nice meta analysis by Nicolas Marro about this subject. So yes, it seems like very specific species are associated with very specific uh, functions. 
Yeah, that's really interesting to think about, to think about the available minerals in an area and maybe how plants and fungi are mediating relationships based on plant needs, what's available, fungal diversity. There's so many things to look for there. And, you know, a lot of your work, it seems like, has occurred there in Chile. Obviously, a lot of your academic career has been spent there. Uh, what brought you to Chile or what, what brought you to that country and kind of put your career there and, and your research there? Well, when I finished my bachelor, I looked for several options in uh, Mexico, Brazil, and here in Chile. And from the three countries, really, Chile was, uh, I like it more, more here. And also the particular PhD program that I did, uh, it, was, it was a PhD in ecology and evolution. So I always like, uh, both subjects, both, both topics, and is one of the few PhD programs in Latin America which contains like a lot of a lot of both things and and a lot of experts in both things. I I am now more like an ecologist. I do a little bit of evolutionary biology, but ninety percent is ecology. Uh, so that that was what attracted me, and also the city Valdivia, and 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 the. <coughs> Notufagus forest here and, and the conifer forest. Uh, I, I, I love to be here, especially, especially because of that. Uh, during my PhD, I was around many national parks. So that was quite good. Yeah, that's a good place to be. Areas with beautiful, rich, diverse forests are great for a soil ecologist, microbiologist, a, a fungi lover. And I guess then, when we talk about the research you're doing, you know, you're characterizing a lot of South American ecosystems. Are there any unique systems you've researched there in Chile that people around the world might not be familiar with? I mean, whether it is some unique conifer forest, you've already laid mm -hmm. out a big one, conifer forests that partner with arbuscular mycorrhizal yeah. fungi, but any other unique ecosystem you've researched or anything else that might be unique to South American ecology? I realize that's a pretty big question to lay at your feet, uh, but anything for, for folks that don't live there that, that might give us a new perspective on some of the research that happens there in terms of underground fungal networks? Yeah, that's a big question. Well, I, I think that always the typical answer is that every, every ecosystem is unique, but I personally am not studying that, but some colleagues in Colombia and in Guyana, French Guyana, and in Brazil, they have been focused in ectomycorrhizal tropical species, which is a really interesting topic because most of the of the trees and most of the flora in 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 the Amazon is arbuscular mycorrhizae. So so arbuscular mycorrhizae dominates in the tropics and then became uh, becomes less abundant in both hemispheres. But there are some few dozen species of trees in the Amazon which are ectomycorrhizal. And it's very interesting because it's like a lonely ectomycorrhizal trees surrounded by a lot of arbuscular mycorrhizal vegetation. So, for example, Adriana Corrales in Colombia, she's studying this, and Heidi Schiemann in, in French Guiana. Uh, so I found, I found that subject really uh, interesting. Also, the people in Argentina, in the Pampas, studying Argentina has a thing which is like biological invasions. They have a lot, sadly. So the group of uh, Nahuel Policelli, 
and Martin Nunez, they have studied in, in this uh, invasions by ectomycorrhizal fungi. It seems like it first the the fungi the ectomycorrhizal fungi associated with pinus or eucalyptus like like suilus for example it it seems like first they arrive and a few years later the invasive pinus or the invasive eucalyptus arrives to the to the natural to the native forest so they have been studying that a lot with quite good uh, artic articles so that that's also quite a, an interesting subject Absolutely fascinating, that idea of invasive species um, moving in there. And I know I've had Terry Henkel on the show who's talked some about those islands of ectomycorrhizal fungi that you find in these, I believe it was Desimbi forests there in Guyana. He's found these dominant, monodominant Desimbi forests with these wild ectomycorrhizal mushrooms growing. So absolutely fascinating. And it would seem to me that South America, because there is so much biodiversity in the tropical environment, there's so much diversity of flora that there must be, I mean, even more potential in terms of understanding soil ecosystems there. From your experience, have you seen kind of an explosion in research in this area in South America? Because obviously mushrooms are and fungi are kind of rising in the collective consciousness of the Western hemisphere in general, but I feel like South America already has so much underexplored biodiversity. Do you think that there are is more research than ever happening in that field uh, there in Chile, where obviously there's influences like Juliana Ferci and things like that, uh, but really in South America more broadly? Yes, I think so. For example, in the last couple of years, maybe in the last three years, there was the first uh, Ecuadorian mycology conference, the first Colombian mycology conference, uh, the, fir the first and second Chilean mycology conference. This third is the third Argentinian mycology conference. So yes, there is a lot. Brazilians, they, they, they have a little bit more, more tradition and well, way, way more people. Uruguayans are also, are also recently organizing. So, so yes, it's, it's quite a strange feeling. I, I, I feel that uh, a lot of festivals popping out everywhere. And a lot of scientific meetings, a lot of NGOs. Uh, of course, Fungi Foundation is the biggest one, but but there are there are some more. So yes, the last is 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 quite a, a good time to be a mycologist here, because the last five years there is a lot of people organizing themselves, and not just in academia, but but also outside academia, which which is also good. Also, we as mycorrhizal researchers, of course, have done quite a lot of things in the, la in the last five years. Uh, so yes, it's really exciting. And, and coming back to the point of un undiscovered biodiversity, uh, I think that last year there was a, an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, and they estimate that in the world there are still like around 9,000 trees three species to be discovered. So you, you think about a tree is a huge thing, but we still haven't uh, discovered 9,000. 9, and from those 9,000, uh, 40% are in South America. So if the trees are not yet totally described, the fungi, of course, way less. 
that that is a vivid depiction if we can't such a visual organism as a tree or such a macroscopic organism as a tree if we haven't discovered all the trees yet imagine how many fungi are associated with those trees and just in reading your cv but then all the groups that you're connected with all these incredible south american mycologists and ecologists i'm thinking that we could see really south america kind of lead the way in this research in a lot of ways whereas right now uh, when I tend to think of research in this area, because of where I am, I think of North America, and, but there's so much great work I think we're going to see exploding out of South America. So that's really exciting to hear you kind of see the same thing. And before I forget, when are we going to have results about the oldest tree there in Colombia, or excuse me, the oldest tree there in Chile? I hope in the next uh, few months, I hope before the, the end of 2022, maybe early 2023 uh, but yes we are now sequencing the data and we'll see what what happens yeah well i'm sure it'll be all over science magazines and headlines so i hope so i'm excited to hear about that yeah. uh, but you know something that i wanted to bring up because you mentioned it in your email to me was the very tangible reality that you have in terms of an experience with political violence. And I just talked about South America as this hotbed for a lot of this amazing fungal and soil science. But I think you find, I mean, especially in Colombia, and I know just a little bit about the FARC and the ELN, and I only have a tiny bit of understanding of what that dynamic is. But I think you find similar things in other South American countries really over the past couple of centuries. Um, and we can well, we can get as much into it as you want, but we can leave out kind of the meddling from outside forces, which you may say that's kind of the cause of this. But the fact is you deal with that very, very tangible reality. How has that affected your explorations of science and your explorations of fungal diversity? I mean, how does this show up in this work that you do? Uh, well, yes, I was born in Cauca, Colombia, which is like the most violent region of Colombia. My mom still lives there. My family still lives there. Uh, so mo most of my family still lives in, in Cauca. Uh, so historic historically, Cauca and, and my hometown had a lot of uh, incidents uh, with with FARC, with with right right wing paramilitars. What what most people outside Colombia don't know is that most of the deaths and the kidnaps and all of that are caused were caused by by right right wing paramilitars. So like groups deeply associated with with several governments. Uh, so I I grew around that. Uh, my father was was killed in that scenario also some family members were uh, displaced so it, it it was like a lot of dark moments and a lot of uh, dark years and people always complains about academia i think that well one thing is luck because i was really lucky to to encounter a really good uh, phd advisor who still is like family to me so sometimes the the advisors are not good and and you have to like be aware of that basically uh, so i was like in a dark place but when i entered my phd i was doing what i like and and and, and i was being paid to do what i like and i'm still being paid to do what i like 
and as it's a really different job for from everything else. I mean, I don't have like a, 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 a schedule. I don't have to enter at nine and, and leave at five. I can move myself wherever I want. I can go to Europe and stay there one month and I can go to sample. So mentally is a really relaxing job for me is it feels like, like playing around. So I think that that has given me a lot of like mental strength to, to deal with the past. And also, also in science, of course, you get rejected all the time. I mean, every, every person gets rejected uh, either in jobs, in publications, in projects. But when I compare like the things that I live in the past to, to a paper rejection or to a job uh, rejection is, is nothing. It's, is 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 absolutely nothing. And I, I am, I'm also thinking that, yes, outside my country, I have, I have made like strong friends, really strong friends and collaborators in science. So for me, like the definition of, of, of family, they are almost family for me now. So family that you can start building around the, the things that, that, that you like. Uh, so yes, that, that's, that's it. Well, thank you for sharing really that deep life experience that myself, I can't relate to. I know so many listeners are, are privileged enough to not have that kind of violence in their past. And I can't imagine what that's like. Um, and so hearing that very real story, but then hearing how science gave you a kind of solace and how these explorations have kind of opened up new areas for you to go into away from the negative, I think is really inspiring and gets to a lot of kind of power that can be found with engaging in the scientific method and really ex exploring our world, the, the joy that can be found in exploring our world, even in a situation really as heavy and, and traumatic as your own. I don't want to underplay the significance of the political disharmony, the violence that comes from that. Do you think in any way that scientific understanding, whether specifically understanding, you know, fungal organisms, any one organism in particular, mm -hmm. but do you think that pursuit of science that has given you so much could do anything to change that situation more broadly, either in Colombia or at that bigger scale. Uh, again, uh, not to underplay kind of how harsh that reality is, but do you think that could have an impact as we see this rising tide of exploration and science? No, that's that's a good question. Yes, in in several in several points, I think that science can inform to make good decisions in in a context of political uh, violence or not even political in general violence uh, but for example in Colombia when the peace process was completed immediately many scientists went to explore areas that were uh, historically in the hands of, of the guerrilla groups and they discovered a bunch of species like hundreds and hundreds of species but also I think that a good psychotherapy and good mental health research, of course, can help a lot because this in Colombia has been quite bad. Uh, it's very deficient, the treatment of, of uh, us as victims, 
but also of the of the people that went to of the of the soldiers of the ex rebels that entered in the in the peace process so they haven't had any mental health uh, mental health treatment any 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 approach nothing so of course science could be crucial in 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 this in this regard and also like in designing um policy around how all these people that many of them were recruited when when, when they were kids so in a sense they are also victims how they reincorporate to society how they build like a strong life projects so i think that yes it can play a huge role and i was also recently thinking because i had a during my bachelor a, a professor elvira she's now retired but she also was a, a victim uh, two of, of her family members were killed as well in the caribbean because they were investigating like the effects of some construction that some huge like infrastructure thing that the government will do in a in a river and they were showing like scientifically that it will have negative effects in the in the environment and they were killed so i was also thinking that just the pure because she's quite an accomplished uh, researcher now retired and i am not doing bad so so one one simple idea was just to go around like schools like to to places uh, uh, rural schools and just to show that it's possible to to well with a lot of hard work and, and, and some luck but it's possible to escape those kind of, of of situations and to do what what we what, what you like it it doesn't have to be science it can be anything but of course we as a, we as scientists uh, want to give that that message uh, so that that was also an idea that i had recently yeah well, I love that idea because I think specifically science and exploring, you know, underexplored biodiversity opens up a lot of hope and perspective that there is so much more there. And I know it deepens a lot of people's perspective about really what, you know, things like what is important, what is true wealth, especially when we know that a lot of dynamics you know, or a lot of dynamics when it comes to violence, you know, it can be political, but there's a ton of economic dynamics as well. People need to mm -hmm. survive, they're fighting over mechanisms of wealth. So, you know, scientific understandings, I think can really broaden people's perspective to, well, to put that in perspective and see those things for what they are, but then see kind of these deeper meanings that we can derive from the world around us once we develop the, the tools, the intellectual tools and the vocabulary to be able to understand the world around us. I think that can be a, an incredibly empowering thing. So, I mean, that's, that is a massive, massive idea to cover. I, you know, and just because a lot of this, I know people listening, uh, myself included, we tend to think of this in the past, how much of this is still a reality, uh, uh, in Colombia for, for your family now? Always oh, is, is, is a lot and not, not just for my, well, for my father's side family yes it's a reality one cousin is still displaced so he still can cannot return to to his la to, to his land uh, but besides that it's a reality for many many people like just three days ago there was a news 
in, in Colombia, in, in the Sucre region, where a army official like killed three innocent teenagers and then he told that they were from a, a, a narco group. So this is called the like the false positive, right. which is some something really terrible that, that has happened in Colombia. So this is still still is going. And and now the dynamics of of who the groups are have changed a lot. Now there are a lot of Mexican cartels, uh, um, some new groups, some old groups. So I think that about half of the country, if not more, is still deeply, deeply affected by this. Yeah. Well, and you brought up this idea where science and that environment could be dangerous. I mean, we're talking about it as solace and expanding perspectives, but it could be dangerous in an environment where people don't treat human life seriously. If you are a scientist exploring something, someone doesn't want you to explore. Sadly, sadly, many, many biologists have, have been killed in Colombia. Yeah, that's, that's a reality. Well, it's a really scary reality. And I giving a huge thanks that you were able to escape that. And now you're bringing kind of more of that information back to people and able to share that something that's helped you so much. Um, but yeah, like I said, I can't really understand that dynamic and I never want to underplay it. I know, you know, things like, oh, if we learn more science, it'll fix it. It's way deeper than that. And so far beyond the scope of this podcast talking about fungal science. But I, I do, I do like that there is a ray of hope in that and, and something like this can have a powerful effect and you're kind of an example of it. There is a huge responsibility of the first world, mainly in, in the drugs, in the drugs world, because if drugs were legal in, in, in the United States and in everywhere, it, it, the problem will not disappear, but it will be way, way, uh, it, it will be not be such a huge problem if, if legalization was possible. So that's where responsibility is. Most of the responsibility is. Well, and that, I mean, that's probably the strongest argument I've heard for drug decriminalization or legalization is getting rid yeah. of that economic incentive that of course. just wreaks havoc on countries where these materials, these substances are sourced from. And before the podcast, I was thinking, could it be as simple as, you know, everyone in America either stop using cocaine or whatever drug it is, or the government just makes it so it's not, and you just put that beautifully into words that that is one huge solution. So that yeah. adds new weight to lobbying, political lobbying here in that direction mm. is let's stop the violence from where these substances are coming from. Yeah. Well, and then, like I said before, coming out of that environment, embracing science, you have now, I feel like you're integrated at the nexus of really a massive kind of South American community and then a global community. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, you've already mentioned SPUN, Society for Protection of Underground Networks, uh, Soil, BON, International Mycorrhiza Society. Uh, tell us about a couple of these societies, the organizations forming around soil ecosystems and, and really what some of those different impacts are or really some of those uh, goals that these groups are striving for. Yes, uh, well, the, the main uh, network, two things. Traditionally, scientific societies have like very restricted uh, roles, mainly publish 
articles and organize uh, annual meetings or, or biannual meetings. But over the last years, there are many networks uh, which are way less formal. Uh, so the main network that I am in, that I am like the the lead, the, the leader, I, I don't like to use that term, but I am like the coordinator of, of the network, is the South American Mycorrhizal Research Network. We started in 2017, because the year before, in 2016, we organized an event uh, here in Valdivia uh, with Maria Opik, who is a really nice uh, researcher from Estonia. She's like pioneering in the use of molecular methods in arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. So it was a very specific uh, workshop, molecular methods for arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. And we end up having like 25 people just from Chile and Argentina. And I told Roberto, my PhD advisor, oh, this is interesting because it's really specific, but still quite a lot of people came. Then the next year in 20. 17, then we decided to organize the first, like, Southern Cone Mycorrhizal Symposium. And then, like, 80 people arrived from, like, nine different countries. So we, we saw that there, there, there was a community. It simply, we were not organized, but there was, there was an, an audience. So in that event, we, launch the, the South American Mycorrhizal Research Network. And we do a lot of things. We have published like maybe three or four papers, uh, uh, two books, two uh, Springer books, each book like with 20 chapters, so really nice books. We have organized that event in, here in Valdivia and then in 2019 in, in Bariloche in Argentina. That was an excellent super good organized event by the by the researchers there and now we are going to organizing a third one in the in the amazon in one year in, in colombia in leticia also with really nice guests and, and workshops uh, so everything is very like horizontal very collaborative sometimes some some of the of the our members have one idea to publish for example, Patricia, she published an article on mycorrhizal science outreach. Uh, so she was the leader of that. And then some professors in Argentina and Brazil, uh, Marcela and Monica, they lead uh, the books. Then other group with Jessica in Ecuador, she leads like a group a study group on, on mycorrhizal traits. So different people organize different things. Uh, myself and um, Guillermo Bueno and Camille Trong, we do YouTube interviews. Uh, so that's the network that I dedicate mo most of, of the time. Uh, but because we do that and because it was like, we don't have any fund, any funding to do this. We, we do this like for free. Uh, but it's, it's all like, for passion so so other people around the world start to notice like like for example the new new phytologist journal they start to notice so they have invited us to to write some stuff they have support uh, a couple of keynote speakers in our events uh, then the soil bond uh, which is the global soil biodiversity observation network 
in Germany, they they also notice. Uh, so what I do is basically, whatever opportunity comes to me, I sp- spread the word to or three hundred members. So some people participate, some do- some not participate, but that's what we do. And also recently, the International Mycorrhiza Society also took notice, and Patricia and me are in the board of members. Uh, or, or the board of directors, sorry, of the International Mycorrhiza Society, which is quite a big deal. So yes, I think that uh, networking is is crucial in science, and it's like the only way to to work. No, no one is an is an island. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when I was reading about these different organizations, it seems like coming together and forming that group really pushes the science forward. I mean, everyone can go do their own research, but it feels like these powerful moments when everyone comes together, ideas are shared, that pushes the science forward. So I, in one hand, I'm super impressed to see all these groups forming. I always am impressed by the courage of folks like yourself to get involved and form a group. And I know you don't want to be a leader and it's a loosely organized collective, much like the organisms you study, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. decentralized, but, but just that you step forward to kind of be a focal point of that group. I think things like that really take things forward. And I was struck by one of the papers you had, uh, which was how research networking through the South American Mycorrhizal Research Network enhanced knowledge of biodiversity and ecosystem services. So I guess with all these groups forming, are we getting from this, I mean, do you think there's kind of a more clear idea of what, not only what impacts that soil mycorrhizas are having and that fungal ecosystems are having, but really how they can change human society? I mean, are these groups coming together, helping us maybe develop better regulatory frameworks for Mm -hmm. how we try to protect these groups? I mean, is this stage one to enacting some of those kind of structural changes that we see either politically, economically, and environments? I mean, do do you see that kind of bubbling up with the formation and organization of of these great groups? I think that this is a medium, it's, it's not immediately that, that this will happen, but we can take examples from another countries. This, this thing that you mentioned has happened in Estonia. They have, I, I was recently there like three weeks ago and they have like a protected area, which is designated as a protected area just because of the mushroom biodiversity. And mm. this was very surprising to me because this this never happens anywhere. Right. So in one of the initiatives that I mentioned, Soil Bone, Carlos Guerra is the is the lead of this and, and Diana Wolf. The idea for both of them, like in ten years maybe in a ten year frame, is to when when we have all the results and all the sequencing and all this huge effort in 90 countries around the world in that in that particular initiative is that well what was the next step the next step is to protect land based on below ground biodiversity this is like the the ultimate dream there 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 are Erin Cameron from Canada she has a nice paper where she shows that the above ground biodiversity hotspots are quite different from the below ground biodiversity hotspots and the thing is that when when 
countries designate protected areas, of course, they are just looking what is above ground. They, they are forgetting what is below ground. So all these initiatives, including the South American network, hopefully will, will lead to that, will lead to, to show how is changing below ground biodiversity, how fast are we losing species, but also which areas we can protect more or less in a, in a sense of the health uh, air project of, of, of Edward Osborne Wilson. So that, that's, that's the dream. I don't see that will happen in two years, in three years, but maybe in 10, 15 years. I hope so. Well, I think you just highlighted too how each group kind of brings an important element to getting to that future. And I love how you just elucidated that as just saying the dream is to protect areas based on the biodiversity happening under the ground. And so each group then has a role in terms of mapping, finding out where it is, what areas do you protect, areas that do advocacy. So I, I can kind of see that and reading about all the groups you participate in, I see this thing forming that is going to I think bring that into reality, our ability to better steward or work with environments that we can't see, ecologies that we can't see and to, and to better understand them. And, and the, the next obvious question is, when we think about global environmental change, how are the soil ecologies you research, the fungal organisms impacted by global environmental change? And then how do you see their potential to help humans and other organisms navigate that future because like i said that's something i get very excited about and i basically say is possible but i i don't really understand how uh so and i know you work with climate change on a day-to-day -day basis so so tell us about those those types of impacts well uh there are some models there are some people like like kabir pei like colin averill who have made some predictions about, for example, in fungi, which specific gills of, or, of fungi will be more affected by, by increasing temperatures. And basically, ectomycorrhizal fungi, their diversity will highly, highly decrease. Arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, not so much. So some specific functional gills of, of fungi will be differently affected by, by these changes. How to protect them or, or how to use them to combat uh, these effects is something really difficult to answer. I think that initiatives using directly the, the fungal inocula, inoculum to, to, for example, restoration projects, these are okay. They they are they are okay, but they are, there is not too much evidence that they work. Sadly, so we need more evidence in that. But also, I think that soil in general, not not just the the ivy or not just the inoculum, the the isolated uh, fungal inoculum, but but all the soil organisms and and native soil could be a hint, could be something that, that uh, some restoration initiatives can use. But yeah, I, I sadly, sorry that 
I have been talking just about about dark stuff, but but I think that this this kind of thing is also quite dark. Uh, is is not very. I am not very optimistic, sadly. I think that one thing that we can do is be more efficient in our in our food production systems, use many different tools in order to protect as much as uh, as of native uh, flora that we can. Uh, pollute less basically uh, but yes try to not expand the, the agricultural frontier as much as possible and, and this implied implies changes changes in in our diet this implies changes in how we grow food and implies in a, from a, an agronomic perspective, implies combining many different tools, from genetic engineer to organic agriculture to precision agriculture, to many many different tools. So yeah, sadly, is 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 not a good future. Sadly, it depends a lot on on politics. So yeah. Well, and I appreciate you because as someone who is an agroecologist and has dealt in underground networks and understands these deep ecologies, I think you're the perfect person to have a, a sobering viewpoint that we need to hear about our future and the steps we need to take moving forward. And really what I'm hearing is kind of what I end up telling people. So I sit on a, a city council in, in my small town here in the United States, and I try to tell people, look, we need to focus on protecting underground networks. We could be leading the way if we do this, but then people do exactly what I did to you, which is, well, what's the answer? Give me the, the definite answer for how we can use these systems to protect us and save our environment. And I always come up with, well, that's kind of a gray area. I, I don't think we know enough about the organisms to know exactly how to do some kind of applied usage. We, I just know that we need to protect them and we need to enhance and nurture these ecosystems and there will be good that comes from that. But, um, but I appreciate you giving us kind of that reality from someone who's researched it much more deeply than myself. Uh, and that is that protecting these ecosystems or protecting these soil ecologies is of vital importance, but we don't immediately know how that will translate to a changing environment amount us and maybe the direct causal relationships that, that will come from that. And, you know, no one can fault you for having a little bit of a dark outlook <laughs> face, yeah. face with some of these realities. Uh, well, then for you, as someone who's looked at so many questions, who's doing so much connecting and networking, what are some of the future questions you want to ask about mycorrhizal networks? What are things on the horizon that you want to study about these soil networks? Uh, well, different things. One of the main ones is a question that I always have, uh, which is at which level of natural selection is this symbiosis operating? This is a quite like maybe 50 year debate in, in, in evolutionary biology, sorry, uh, at which level of, sele of selection, at which level of the biological hierarchy natural selection operates. So someone like Richard Dawkins will say at the gene level and only the gene level. But I have some publications on this thing called multi-level selection theory. So this theory, it says that natural selection can operate at, at different levels of the biological hierarchy. 
can be at the level of the group, can be at, at the level of the individual, or other levels. So I think that, that the time is to of us to to see this this symbiosis in this perspective. The thing is that again, there are like myths. In this theory, sometimes selection at the individual level, in this case could be at the level of the fungus, can be way more important than selection at the level of the group. In this case, the fungus plus the plant. Uh, but sometimes selection at the level of the group, meaning the fungus and the plant, can be way more important than at the level of the individual. So I think that one thing is to is to see that to under, understand this symbiosis in in that context. Also, also there is a lot of recent research, specifically in arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, on how the bacteria that gets attached to the ivy. It seems that this bacteria is also doing a lot of things. It seems that they are degrading stuff that that the fungus can cannot degrade so it seems that there is also a relationship with with bacteria this is really interesting stuff going on another thing i think that is to understand specifically which mycorrhizal traits and and, and my good friend uh, guillermo bueno in, in estonia he he has done a lot of stuff in mycorrhizal traits mycorrhizal traits can mean for example like the Ify diameter or um, how much carbon and nitrogen the 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 ify has a trait is anything that you can measure in in an organism uh, so how mycorrhizal traits are distributed around the world and how they affect different ecosystem functions like like nutrient acquisition like plant growth like pathogen defense, like water acquisition. So how to rel relate in a causality framework, how to causally relate these things, mycorrhizal traits and these different functions. It's like a big question in, in general in ecology, but, but more particularly in mycorrhizal ecology. So I think that the next 10, 15, 15 years, this is ha already been this cost like for for 20 years but still we don't have like a, a clear answer on this subject that feels like cracking the mycorrhizal code in a way and then add into that the idea of these bacteria that mm. are riding on the hyphal threads and how those relate and the host specificity of those bacteria to the different mycorrhizal species in different environments i mean just infinite amounts of questions to look at and seeing the way you think and seeing all this research laid out before you, I, you don't have to run through the whole thing, but seeing all this research laid out before you, how do you approach science? You sent me some 10 precepts of how you approach the scientific process. And again, as someone who's on the forefront of research I'm fascinated in, and someone whose brain <laughs> I, I'm kind of in awe of, how do you approach, how do you approach the scientific method? Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a huge question, but well, I think that I am always self-aware of, or, or I, I try to be self-aware of being wrong, of, of, of committing mistakes all the time. That's, that's like the first thing. Even if I try some experiment, 
even if I did all the statistical analysis, at some point, for example, my interpretation of the data can be deficient. So I, I always mm. try to be aware of that also because some scientists tend to be very rationalists, but I think that even us as a scientist or especially us as a scientist, we are not aware that, that like rationalism has its flaws. It, it has his, his caveats. So we have always to be kind of aware of that. Another thing, yes, some, something that I mentioned before, which is like, we cannot work alone. It's, it's impossible mm. to, 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 to work alone. Uh, sadly, what I, when, when I did my PhD, I was alone. I was the only PhD student of my professor, but I had even even at that early stage, like all these connections, and he also had all these connections across Chile, in Germany. I make my own connections in Estonia. So even when when you are like literally alone as as I was, still we can we can make these uh, these connections. Also, something that I think is important is that I don't like I don't like scientists that only dedicate their time to things that will lead to scientific articles. I think that there is mm. way more than that. It's important, of course. And, and, and I have like a, a list of, of like maybe 15 things that I still need to write and some very delayed, delayed things for, for many years. So I, I know that I, that I need to do that, but it's not the only thing that, that I do. I will be very unhappy if I dedicated a hundred percent of my time to, to things that lead to published articles. I do things like this podcast. I do things like Skype a scientist, for example, this wonderful initiative from, from the United States, uh, a lot of seminars, a lot of, for example, reviewing papers, which is something that, that scientists don't, don't like because it, it takes a lot of time. But I think that I think that is is important to to be a, a peer reviewer. Uh, so I think that I I dedicate I don't know maybe thirty forty percent of my time to things that will not lead to to publish papers. But I think this is super important to to do that. What else? I think that also yes something that I, that I mentioned previously. But some some people get too attached. To, to their career. I think that science, of course, is important. I, I, I wouldn't be a, a scientist if I, I think otherwise. But if you, if you fail, it's, it's not the end of the world. It's a job like anything else, like, like every other job. So some people, for example, I have seen this. Sadly, I have seen th uh, things where Two researchers have like two contrasting ideas and they respond to each other and they contradict each other in meetings or in, in articles. But for me, it's sad when they don't have a good personal relationship. It, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't take it personal. You are contradicting, you're, you're contradicting another researcher and that's it. It, it, it doesn't matter. So I think that some people take it way too seriously and way too personal. And I think that 
Uh, we, we shouldn't do that. And maybe the last thing that I want to say is that, yes, I have a lot of research interest. I think that specialization is important, but also you can be friend <laughs> or collaborator of many different specialists, but my own taste is to have many different areas. So what I do the most is soil and mycorrhizal ecology, but for example, I also have some publications in, in evolutionary biology, even in religion, in uh, uh, conservation science, in uh, plant hormones, so other, other subjects. I, I really like to, to explore around and to have perspectives from people from other areas who can have a way broader view than you, or maybe not so, a not so broad uh, view than you, but like interacting with, with people from many different areas has helped me a lot to, to, I think to, to be a, a better scientist that, that I was uh, several years ago. When I read some of those notes you sent over, well, really, you sent over your 10 points of how you approach your kind of philosophy of science, which I always find supremely interesting. I read those and thought, I hope every scientist kind of works like this, because I thought they were really important precepts about, yeah, multidisciplinary approach, kind of having almost a humility and a perspective on the whole pursuit that you weren't willing to like get in personal fights with people. You weren't willing to always say that you're right and try to be alone at the top of the mountain, but you had this kind of humility and perspective that came along with this pursuit that again was really admirable and something that I, I really resonated with. So thank you so much for sharing that. Where can people find your work? Where can people connect with you? Is there a website, you know, a, a social media? Where can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Yes, I have a website, uh, cesarmarin.com, basically. So I, I, I think that you will publish maybe my website in the, in the description. Yeah. And also in Instagram, uh, cesarmarin203, uh, 203. Uh, it's also my Instagram handle, but in my website, there is everything. There is all my publications, all my science outreach uh, work is also in the website. So you, you find everything there. And you can always go to ResearchGate and Google Scholar, which I think yeah. you have linked on your website uh, and find more about your work because it is really varied. I was even reading about fungus retrieved from a cacao field in soil. So there's some there's some interesting research that you've been a part of. I highly encourage people to go check it out. Uh, and I'll wrap things up for our interview with the three questions that I like to ask all my guests. And I have a feeling you'll have some thoughtful, uh, great answers for us. And the first one is a mushroom or a fungus that you love and why. And this can be an arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi we'll never see or a big showy mushroom that you love. Just a mushroom or fungus that you love and why. Well... <laughs> From a gastronomic point of view, my favorite one is Botrigoletus lojo. Previously, it was Boletus lojo, but some years ago, it's named Botrigoletus lojo. Here in, in Spanish, we just call it lojo. Uh, is restricted to Notophagus obliqua forest here in, here in, here in this region in Valdivia. It's a delicious mushroom. It's, it's super nice to cook. 
I am not a good cook, but that I can cook. <laughs> <laughs> and it's huge. It can weigh like maybe one kilogram. Simple to cook. Also, Cortinarius You said one, but I, I have like three. Cortinarius magellanicus is a purple one, also really common around here. And I was recently in the taxonomy. So I was one of one colleagues in, in, um, in Peru, in the Amazon. They dis I am a co-author in, in the discovery of this, um, species called Rhizoglomus cacao in a cacao field, uh, field. I am not a taxonomist, but I help them to, to count the spores and all of that. So I am in, in the, in the article. So it's my, it's the first species that I officially describe. So of course I, I like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's phenomenal. And I'm glad I, I remembered that one because I, that was a pretty seminal moment for you is discovering a fungus. That's everyone's dream. Well, and then a big kind of broad question. And I think you've touched on it throughout. Uh, but what has this relationship that you've developed? with fungal organisms, and maybe you could just say the whole soil ecosystem, you know, what has that given to you? Lessons it's taught you, maybe spiritual perspectives it's brought you, but what has this relationship with these more than human organisms uh, given to you? Yes, I think that uh, fungi and mushrooms are so interesting. They are so, for example, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, the spores, each spore can have up to 50 nuclei and, and the nuclei can be different from each other. So I, I find this so interesting, so surprising. So I think that fungi, they have like such a different biology from everything else. So the, the lesson that I get from that is that is not all written, is not as you think it is, that you always need to ask more questions. Uh, well, in traditional biology and evolutionary biology especially, is thought thinking in animals, is traditionally has been thought, thought thinking in animals, but then fungi came and changed everything, changed paradigms and and turn things around. So I think in, in, in life is, is the same. In, in, in life is the same. You think that you know everything and then so many stuff happens in, in, in such a little time and, and it changes how you approach reality, basically. It changes how your own paradi paradigms, because science has its own paradigms, but also... Each person has its own moral and societal uh, paradigms, so they can change in in in, a, in any second, and and that's what uh, fungal ecology has taught me. I think so many people can resonate with that when learning more about how fungal organisms work, how they develop communities, how they network. It changes everything about how you saw the world uh, and just changes yeah. our narratives because so much of the human narrative for so long was based on like the animal kingdom or things we could see. We always try to contextualize our own being against other organisms we can see. So now that we're understanding these organisms we can't see and they are so much different, it just changes everything. It's like, what are we doing here? How are we supposed to connect with people? You know, there's so many. So uh, I think that so many people can relate with that answer. Uh, and then we've talked about you know, different elements of 
you know, how fungi can maybe change futures, change big dynamics, but what are the highest aspirations you have for how our understanding of these organisms and the networks that they develop can change our society for the better? You know, in the coming decades, as we research more and more, what's kind of your highest hopes for how that can make big impacts in our societies? Well, three different things. I think that one is spaces like, like this podcast or maybe like the Spawn Initiative, uh, which has had a lot of impact, a lot of me media impact. Uh, one, one thing is basically ed education is, is crucial. I have had really nice experience, but also really bad experience here in, here in Chile regarding the, the general public. Some people know a lot and some people don't know anything. So one big aspiration is that because each year, like 2000 species of, of fungi are discovered each year. But I don't think that we have 2000 taxonomies in the world. We have way, lo way lower than that. So we need more people. We need way more people studying, studying fungi. And, and this, of course, takes, uh, generations, but that's one, one big aspiration. As said before, I, I am not a taxonomist, but I, I love taxonomies. I, I love the, the, the thing that they do. A second thing is regarding, yes, agriculture. I think that a good soil management and of course taking into account that, that fungi are crucial in, 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 in the soil. A good agricultural management will lead to even carbon sequestration. A good agriculture will, will, will lead to, to a better environment, basically. And a third aspect is something that I mentioned before regarding like protected areas based on, on fungal biodiversity. That will be fantastic. Here, uh, Notophagus forest here in Chile uh, have the highest ectomycorrhizal biodiversity in, in South America. So, uh, and because now I am, have been many years in this kind of ecosystem, so I, I see that, I see, I see that happening in, 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 in the medium time. Uh, so that's a, a big dream. Yeah. I mean, those would be huge shifts in our societies if those things could come, could come to pass. And I love your first point about education because it's really a call to action for everybody to just spread this message start a show, start a website, do your own research and spread it to people because the same knowledge people have of animals and trees, I'm convinced that, you know, within the next, the coming decades, it'll be very important for people to have that same fluency and familiarity with fungi. And I think that will lead to amazing changes. So that was a, a beautiful answer. Well, Dr. Marin, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I want to make sure to, I didn't downplay your life experience there with violence in Colombia. I mean, it's something that doesn't almost seem real to me, but coming face to face with someone who's gone through it hit me with kind of the impact of what that means. So I never wanted to take that too lightly. I appreciate you sharing those stories, sharing it in the context of your research. Uh, again, it's something I just want to kind of elevate and make sure we're uh, that I, I'm giving enough appreciation for for what it takes to to be vulnerable and share that kind of experience. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing that and all of your other insights. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thank you to you and thanks to your partner. And it was uh, a great uh, 
interview. I'm really happy with it.